0: Global Climate Week is over, but not the debate or the search for answers. In recent weeks, Congress has heard from many experts sharing their ideas to address industry emissions. Others are talking to lawmakers about options for developing a climate-resilient infrastructure. What policies are needed to keep facilities open during floods, fires, and storms? That's our topic today. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. While work on the next surface reauthorization bill is still in its early stages, many see it as an opportunity to push for policies that would encourage resiliency, changing the way we plan, design, fund, and maintain facilities. The goal is to make transportation, communications, water, and energy investments more durable in the face of increasingly strong weather events and rising sea levels. The Bipartisan Center for Climate and Energy Solutions shares that view, stumping for action since offering its policy options to achieve climate-resilient infrastructure in January 2018. Christiane Huber is the center's Resilience Fellow. She helped write the paper and visited the Hard Facts studio to talk about it. We talk a lot about resilience on this podcast and in Washington, D.C., but it would be nice to start with a definition. Can you define it for us?
1: Resilience is the ability to anticipate, prepare for, and respond to hazardous events or trends. So improving climate resilience would involve assessing how climate change might create new or alter existing climate-related risks. And those are any risks that are faced by communities, uh, companies, or also physical structures or or assets.
0: And as it pertains to infrastructure... Seems like we weren't really talking about this a few years ago, but now everyone is. How did that happen?
1: Well, there has been a lot of disasters recently. Um, We definitely saw, after Hurricane Katrina, their really attitudes about expecting conditions to be the same forever changed. That showed this extreme storm that really overwhelmed infrastructure, really overwhelmed uh, local systems, emergency response. And since then, you know, certainly at the federal level, and as well at the state and city level, and, and places that have been affected by some of these disasters, there has been a different approach of thinking about how extreme these events could be, how often they could be. And so that resilience or also adaptation is a it's a similar term that is, is used often interchangeably. That has been growing as a concept within engineering, within urban planning, and also in, in terms of climate policy and an emergency preparedness policy. In the last few years, we're hearing so much about resilience, and there's more resilience programs, and there's more resilience research, and we're hearing Congress talk more about resilience. And that's really because of disaster costs are going up a lot. NOAA keeps track of billion-dollar disasters, and 2017 was the most expensive on record. And that really emphasized that climate change is not a far-away issue. It's also not an issue that will only affect very specific areas, like only Florida or only the Gulf. It is affecting inland areas. It's affecting people along rivers. It's affecting the Northeast. It's affecting the West Coast. We're seeing wildfires in places where flooding is not as much of an issue. And so those cumulative disaster costs are emphasizing this is a real fiscal issue as well as a serious safety issue. And so that has really prompted this growth in this resilience conversation.
0: Congress is part of that. You just said so. They're also considering the next surface reauthorization bill for a six-year period, as has been the case for the last 20, 25 years. That's an opportunity to codify some of these policy ideas and start to take them mainstream nationwide.
1: Definitely. There are lots of good things happening at the city and state level. We are seeing, yeah, some really good examples of state level Policy coordination on climate change, on having state agencies working on it, on the state and then local and county governments working vertically on how to coordinate their climate responses. Um, and there's lots of lessons from those levels for the federal government to be thinking about. And in terms of infrastructure policy in particular, there's certainly opportunity to be thinking more about how to fund more projects and prioritize more projects that will better protect communities and will better last and perform reliably for their entire design lifetime.
0: The Senate kicked off this conversation right before the start of the August recess when the committee in charge of this topic passed a reauthorization bill, its version. Did you have a chance to look through that to see if it was tackling any of these issues?
1: It certainly acknowledges resilience and acknowledges some changing conditions. Um, But with anything, when you're talking about as much risk as we see across the entire country, there's more opportunity to really integrate more resilience principles and criteria throughout all of the infrastructure projects that are focused on, you know, they're in coastal areas, that might be um, for transportation, that might be for navigation. All of those infrastructure areas have opportunities for there to be some policy solutions that make all the infrastructure perform better for a longer time.
0: You actually aren't just saying something should be done. You've written a paper outlining some policy options. It's been on the street for a year and a half. Tell us how that came to be.
1: At C2ES, you know, we, we look at different opportunities to work on policies that have some more bipartisan support. And we, we are a nonpartisan think tank and really look for those opportunities to work with both parties in different policy areas. And so there was uh, some energy around an infrastructure bill. And we wrote this paper based on what we had been hearing from the companies we work with, from the communities that we work with, and this was really informed by some of those events that and, and conversations, and it is just a, a series of policy recommendations for how to make a federal infrastructure package better deliver resilient infrastructure, and that's through different funding streams, through different design criteria and different requirements for infrastructure design.
0: In case our listeners haven't had a chance to read it, or maybe they don't even know about it, I thought we might go through some of the categories, some of the recommendations, give them an overview, and then if they want to read more, we'll have the link to the paper and a webinar in the show notes. So first on the list was informed decisions with climate projections. How can that be accomplished?
1: It's important to be thinking about infrastructure's performance over a long period of time. So it's 50 years, 100 years, 100 years from now, we're talking about a really different climate than we see right now, even in low emission scenarios. And so that uh, recommendation really is looking for any federal infrastructure projects to be informed by those projections and funding really to be tied to use of climate projections in that design and, and in that proposal process even. That's really important. When you're looking at sea level rise, there are coastal areas that whatever you install might be experiencing flooding more often. When you're looking in urban areas, different designs really need to account for much hotter temperatures. And when you're looking, you know, throughout the West, you need to be thinking about wildfire, as well as flooding, as well as drought. So there's also opportunities to be thinking about if you're putting in any water infrastructure, really how to minimize water use, water leakage, and really prepare for that future where there could be long dry spells.
0: Are those considerations being made today?
1: Yes. Infrastructure design and planning right now certainly considers those impacts and those changing conditions that doesn't necessarily happen in a really uniform way across agencies. There's opportunity for more federally consistent guidance and requirements on that. There used to be the federal flood risk management standard, which required planning to a certain base flood elevation in areas that had flood risk. And that required all agencies to consider that one standard that was what they needed to follow. And it has been revoked. And so While each agency might have their own um, standard or waiver planning for that, some more federal coordination and then transparency about that would be critical for, you know, delivering more resilient infrastructure.
0: And that just leads right into the next recommendation, which is overcoming outdated climate and weather data. You spent time talking about the problem with floodplain maps and how half of them aren't really up to date. They don't account for what's going on even now.
1: In the disasters that we've seen in the last few years, especially in Harvey, we know first of all that the FEMA flood maps are out of date, and they are working to update them, but that's a huge task. And um, flood maps are kind of problematic because they show kind of absolute amounts of risk, whereas we know that risk is kind of more of a gradient, but. There's also the issue that storms and flooding are changing with climate change. And so we saw this with Dorian, we saw it in Harvey. These rain dumps that the tropical storms bring now don't necessarily only flood floodplain areas, even if you can project that risk really well. There needs to be more consideration of those random 30, 40-inch events that can happen uh, in places that have not historically been floodplain
0: It seems it would be really hard, given the way the weather is changing so often, to make any projections at all.
1: It is really hard. And those larger storms have showed that no matter how much data you have and how much projection you have, you do need to plan to some extent for uncertainty, which I think we cover later in the paper. But This recommendation was really more about ensuring that federal science agencies were able to collect climate data, were fully funded to do that, and that the need for that data is reflected in that amount of funding and that amount of federal support. And then also, there is opportunity for the private sector to be able to partner more to develop that data, to use that data, to inform that data. The private sector is doing some of their own projections in different sectors and for different purposes. And so thinking about how to have some more collective and shared information that can really benefit smaller communities that might not have money to do this really advanced projections and then also, you know, help the private sector and then also inform federal infrastructure design. There's so much opportunity to improve that data collection and that sharing
0: transparency was in your report, too. I thought that was interesting. We need to be more open about the kind of information we're gathering, the decisions we're making off that information.
1: Absolutely. So that's a a really important thing to understand in terms of coordinating infrastructure design. If the federal government is using a certain flood elevation to inform their highway design, and then a local community knows that their roads need to be elevated to a different elevation because the risk is higher, because they have some local knowledge about where floods and what floods the most and which roads are the most critical. You can have a city that's really resilient and is really prepared while the federal or state roads around them are not as resilient and they're actually still not able to evacuate if there's a disaster or you know still unable to get to work. And so the key to that transparency is... Understanding how a decision was made about infrastructure and understanding, you know, if something was built where we know there's a floodplain, being able to ask, what scenario was that based on? And if it's a low emission scenario, which therefore means lower impacts, probably less precipitation, certainly less sea level rise, different conditions like that, then there's opportunity for a community to push back and say, we would like you to... Plan to a higher scenario or to sign off on that and agree that that's the impacts that they're expecting and that's a good level to design to.
0: Prioritize flexible and adaptable projects. What would a project need to consider or include to be considered flexible and adaptable?
1: So, this is actually a little confusing. Adaptation does specifically mean preparing for climate impacts and considering climate impacts in design. Whereas adaptable actually specifically means a design that is able to change or evolve over time based on how conditions are changing and being able to change something, you know, every 10 years or having opportunities to update it in a different way. Flexible and adaptable projects are a really great way to address uncertainty. Even looking out to 2050, we're looking at a range of temperature increases, and we're looking at a range of sea level rise. And then if you're looking out to 2080 or 2100, that range is large. It's several inches difference for sea level rise. That is hard to plan for. So if you have a more adaptable design where maybe you're able to build more on top of the seawall or you're able to more easily elevate a structure in the future, then you can see what happens in 2050, check back, look at this old design which kind of has this contingency planning element of it, and you know that you've seen one foot of sea level rise and you can decide w- what to do with that design then instead of discovering you did not design to the right conditions and it no longer works, or There's a lot of room for mistake in over-designing infrastructure to be resilient. If you are building everything 10 feet more than it needs to be, you're taking resources from something else that you could have used that for. That flexible and adaptable design really overcomes that kind of decision paralysis you see from not having enough information and, and really can be much more beneficial for people living in these places in the future.
0: You've even considered maintenance and how that can be included in a program like this.
1: Yeah, it's important to think about if you've built this amazing anything, road system, this amazing coastal system, and then communities or states have to take over its maintenance operations and repair. It can be really hard to keep that performing well for a long time. And it you know, it can become burdensome in terms of cost for communities or or states that are or or also the federal government that are continuing to manage and maintain this structure for a long time. And so when you're thinking about how climate change might wear something differently, it's important to think about how that maintenance may be a lot more. And there's opportunities to design to that or to create in developing new construction materials to really think about how to reduce that maintenance, how to reduce that need for repair, and really enable communities to be able to take care of that infrastructure in a way that does extend its life as its resilient design had intended.
0: You're maybe using the right materials from the start instead of the same materials you've used for the last 50 years.
1: Right, absolutely. And that's also an element of of the flexible and adaptable projects of if the design for something has that flexibility and adaptability and a community is finding that it's difficult to maintain or that it's not performing right, having that ability to change its construction later to enhance that performance without necessarily meaning there's lots more maintenance and lots more repair, that can really make that infrastructure much more resilient.
0: Streamlining is also in your policy paper as it relates to environmental laws and regulations. That one is a hot-button issue intended to, I think, in one definition reduce the number of challenges, let's decide this project is happening or it is not. Let's not litigate for 25 or 30 years. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, we wanted to acknowledge that there, you know, in the beginning of this administration, there was a lot of talk about how to streamline um, environmental regulations around different federal projects. And there is certainly projects move slowly certainly, you know, to some extent there's opportunity to streamline that process. But this policy recommendation is really about not removing any environmental protections as a trade-off for that. And another benefit to really thinking about resilience up front when you're at the federal level deciding what infrastructure project you're going to fund or if you are at the more engineering level and deciding what you're going to install or if you're at the state level and deciding what you want to propose. It's important to be thinking about those climate impacts up front instead of that coming in later in environmental review or in different levels of review and having to change the design at that point. So there's also a lot of opportunity to avoid a lot of environmental challenges by thinking about this more holistically at at the very start of considering how to solve some climate challenge with infrastructure.
0: I think people would like to reduce the amount of back and forth. Uh, if for no other reason than to just know this project is happening or it's never going to happen. And so hearing that topic raised in the context of climate issues, resiliency, all those sorts of things, it's interesting because normally, you know, those fights are taking place around a minnow or a small bird or something, you know, and, and they're not so much focused on Uh, The flooding, because those things kind of get taken care of through the core of engineer process, right? You have to allow streams to flow through and and all of those. It's more about wildlife and plants and things. Uh, So that's why I wanted to sort of talk about that a little bit more is to drill down because our audience is interested in this very much so. How you see the resiliency argument coming into that part of this overall approach to things.
1: Yeah, I don't know the sense that necessarily happens a lot right now, but as as we were just talking about, you know, as you're seeing more and more disasters and more and more lives at risk, also there could be some real contention there and some real need to weigh those trade-offs, but natural systems are also an incredibly important element of being resilient. Areas that are exposed to storms are trying to reestablish wetlands and are trying to reestablish beaches and trying to reestablish these different natural barriers. So the key is to think now about how to certainly make the process more efficient, but really not sacrifice those systems that also have important resilience purposes and, you know, wind up maybe developing some project that is resilient, but sacrifices another system that would have had some protective benefit.
0: Or maybe have an impact on whether things flood
1: right, or not. Right, that too. Right? Yeah.
0: Let's examine the kind of infrastructure projects you think we should prioritize for funding. You've outlined some in the paper. Can you walk us through those?
1: We at C2ES have done some work with the Department of Energy and a number of utilities that we work with directly through our Business Environmental Leadership Council And also more informally, to think about how electric utilities can be more resilient and therefore provide service after disasters and provide service really soon after disasters. Our first priority infrastructure project is upgrading electricity transmission and distribution infrastructure, uh, certainly to the goal of being more sustainable and reducing energy consumption and, and using some lower carbon energy options, but also to the point of of increasing that resilience and reliability. Upgrade and expand alternative transportation modes and fuels is our next policy recommendation. In thinking about, especially a transportation bill, to really only be thinking about roads and very like car-centric transportation systems is not necessarily resilient. Of course, that is also carbon intensive and and also um, relies on fossil fuels. But There are many broader benefits to thinking more about public transportation, and there are resilience co-benefits of that. And then in this paper, we call out some opportunities for thinking about electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And so there's opportunity for thinking about that technology more broadly for cities and for regions. Our next policy recommendation is modernizing internet and telecommunications infrastructure. Communities with up-to-date or robust telecommunications systems are better equipped to respond to disasters after disasters when telecommunications are down for a long time and people can't receive information or get in touch with their loved ones, that really complicates recovery and, and makes the disaster more stressful. That's one of those cascading impacts where uh, when those systems are down, it really causes everything else to not work as well. So addressing that upfront, especially with federal infrastructure funding and initiatives is a A really critical way to enhance community resilience. Our last recommendation is to upgrade water infrastructure and expand capacity via green infrastructure. So this is both about upgrading infrastructure to have fewer leaks and waste less water, places that are vulnerable to droughts. And it's also about designing stormwater systems that are able to absorb more flood water. And green infrastructure is a Helpful tool for this by using more vegetation and natural features to capture stormwater. You don't have quite as much water running through stormwater systems and putting that pressure on them. And then those green infrastructure installations also can have a number of co-benefits like cooling cities, uh, like enhancing water quality, um, and and creating pretty features or even parks where people can can recreate.
0: Now, to make it easy for people reading the report, Congress, pay attention to this. You've outlined nine out of probably hundreds of federal programs that ought to be modified or existed. I don't want to go through all of these, and you probably no. don't either. Uh, they're, they're in the report. But, but what's the overall thrust of this section? There are nine that you've listed here. What's the overall message?
1: Well the fact that there are all of these different policy areas demonstrates that climate change is affecting how so many different agencies are providing services and will continue to affect that. And so across all of the different agencies and programs that we consider in this, which looks at USDA, looks at EPA, looks at flood insurance, um, looks at Department of Transportation, all of these different government services need to operate well in a changing climate. And it's important now to write policy now that considers that and really prepares them and equips them to do that. And that both is in terms of reducing exposure to climate risk. And it's also about ensuring that the communities and states that the government is really serving are completely prepared for these events and when there's an extreme event, or in the case of just gradual sea level rise or changing temperatures, uh, that those communities can continue to thrive in changing conditions and after disasters can be back online faster with less cost and with less people you know, in, in danger.
0: The s- scope of this list seems to, on its own, make the argument for A broader national approach to what we're doing on this issue, how we're preparing for it, how we're setting a course for surviving it, frankly. Is that in here? Is that a message that comes out of the breadth of these programs? And I'm sure there are more. I can't believe there are only nine.
1: No, these were ones that we thought of as kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is definitely what this is speaking to. These are really just recommendations for existing programs. We don't even recommend any new programs. So there's certainly opportunity for new finance mechanisms, for new federal level policy coordination, and for more federal support of state and local governments that are acting on this. But... In terms of policies that are currently rolled up into infrastructure policy, this is what we highlighted as as some opportunities within an infrastructure bill.
0: Because if you wanted to include everything, you would start with federal funding and you would end at local zoning.
1: So much of resilience is this hyper-local issue, and it needs to be completely locally informed. So to some extent, there's only so much the federal government can and should do, but It should be supporting good decision-making locally, and it should be supporting these better designs of infrastructure as well as other urban planning decisions that are based on these climate projections and that are based on robust climate data.
0: We know you're getting the year of Congress because you've been on the Hill recently testifying on these issues, people from your organization, not you in particular. But you have also attended meetings. Uh, what is Congress thinking right now when it comes to, as your is titled, policy options for climate resilient infrastructure?
1: Really generally in the meetings that I've been in with this paper and, and talking about other issues uh, that have come up in our local meetings and in meetings with companies, you know, certainly everyone that we've met with has agreed that this need for resilience is, is clear. It's a fiscal issue as well as a health issue as well as an infrastructure issue. And that has taken different forms, though. We see representatives from all across the country and from blue and red states talking more about these storms and, and about wildfire and about what those risks mean for their districts and states. Both sides, they all are receptive to this information and are starting to think more innovatively about how to have the federal government support their districts more in being more resilient.
0: That's a start.
1: It is a start. How it filters through different infrastructure transportation policy um, is a little different, but more broadly, you know, there's just certainly been this acknowledgement that changing conditions, not necessarily from climate change, but changing coastal and changing river conditions and changing precipitation are certainly affecting different parts of the country. There's a real need for policy to consider how to help people prepare for that.
0: If people have a need for more information, where can they find it?
1: This paper that we've been talking about today is at www.c2es.org. We also have Um, a number of other pages about climate impacts and how they are affecting communities as well as companies. And we have a number of other projects that we're working on related to resilience, including some work on corporate climate disclosure and uh, some research on how local economies are affected by climate change and how cities should be preparing for that.
0: We'll look for those links in the show notes, or we can go straight to the website. But either way, we appreciate you writing the paper and taking time to share it with us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows. Transportation funding, resiliency, and climate from voices you won't hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, October 9th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.